Please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you still got your 1 Corinthians overview, the half page outline that looks like this with you, this would be time to just look at it for a minute as an introduction to this message today. We do have some extra on the back table. If anybody would want one for today, I was told that there's a couple of people that might be willing to grab some and pass them out to you. Would you raise your hands if you need one, anybody? Well, there was a few tentative hands. Keep them up. More and more. As we go through this uh, particular book, it always helps, and I'll try to uh, make sure that we major on the message itself, the whole message, so we can see how the different parts fit. Notice how long the section on church leaders is. In section A, the first number one is where we are in chapter four. And then kind of peruse the rest of those and notice that there's only one other section that comes close. They're almost exactly the same length. But this section that deals with church leaders and this church's misunderstanding or ignorance in how church leaders should be viewed is three and a half chapters long. And that in this section, it's um, that three and a half chapters is really 82 verses. There's a reason that there's this much of this letter focused here. It's significant simply because it lets us know how much attention Paul is paying to this particular subject at the outset of his letter. So what does that tell us? We better pay attention to it as well. This is an important subject of paramount importance. Um, It is something that the Corinthians must understand. They must get straight before they can properly think about all the other areas of concern that Paul is going to address. I've been trying to get my own head around the significance of what Paul is saying here at the beginning of his letter for weeks now. And the more I look at it, the more important it seems to be. For example, the ugly divisions within this church are directly related to this congregation's worldly view of what leadership is. Their worldly view of leadership is directly related to their valuing more of what the world says than what God says, which means that they have lost sight, really, of what it means to belong to God. They've lost sight of what it means to belong to God because their everyday decisions have been more and more determined by their own selfish desires which are fueled by the worldly thinking and the so-called worldly wisdom. In other words, their ability to to follow Christ 
has been undermined and it's been compromised. Why? Because their desire to please themselves now outweighs their desire to please God. You might remember last week we talked about what it meant to be self-deceived. Can somebody be this self-deceived? The answer is an obvious yes. Can you and I be self-deceived? Yes. So I hope you see how important that all this is and what Paul is trying to do here. The church that Paul laid the foundation of Christ in and Apollos cultivated is now being what we could call remodeled by some people who are building with perishable and worldly materials that will burn on the last day, which is what Paul said was a problem and inevitable if they kept going this direction in chapter 3, verse 13. And in these divisive groups we've already read about, other leaders have obviously risen in them who have substituted their own ideas for how the church should operate and look. And they've done that by elevating form above content, prestige above humility, stoicism above real love, rhetoric above truth, money above people, reputation above integrity. And you can imagine this list could go on for quite a while. Many followed along and have even disregarded Paul. They've done that to him personally as, and as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And once the foundation of Christ crucified is ignored or forgotten, Forgotten mayhem results. Sin is redefined as not sin. And tolerance of sin is defined as being loving, etc., etc., etc. And it's into this context that Paul writes to them all, but he especially makes clear that leaders in the church are and will be accountable to the Lord for their destruction of God's temple, the church, for leading so many people away from the gospel of Christ crucified and everything that means. God deeply cares about his church, which, as Paul writes, it oozes with the care of God for what's going on. And there are, of course, several ways to divide and outline the chapter we're in now, chapter 4. But one of the best is to divide it in three parts, each of which explains a vital aspect of what church leadership actually means. First, church leaders must be stewards of the mysteries of God. And that's where we are today in the first seven verses. Church leaders must be stewards of the mysteries of God. And then following that, second, church leaders must live in the light of the cross themselves. What's that in 
complicated way of saying what? They've got to practice what they preach. And that is Jesus Christ first. And everything in their lives has got to be lived out in light of that. Well, you can probably figure out what the third section is. Verses 14 through 21. Church leaders must encourage and be willing to warn both the people of God to live in light of the cross. So this is a really, really, really important chapter. If you were able, would you please stand as I read? I'm going to read the whole chapter today just so we can get the whole picture. And then we'll go back and cover the first seven verses. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Chapter 4. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffered and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not 
the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe seated. Well, here in part one, we're looking at church leaders must be servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's what your church leaders are here for. Elders, pastors, that's our main calling. In this chapter, Paul makes it very clear to the Corinthians how they should think about their Christian church leaders. And since Paul left Corinth several years early after being with them a year and a half, they have disrespectfully judged him and not held on to his foundational teaching like they needed to. It's obvious from the reports that he's received that this opened the door for the worldly values of their city to hold sway over how their church was now living and operating. So on the one hand, Paul must remind them what an apostle's calling should mean for them as Christ's church. And on the other hand, he must make them see how upside down and dangerous their perspective has become. Sound like something you'd like to tackle? Well, we're going to tackle it together. In verse 1, this is how one should regard us. First, as servants of Christ, and second, as stewards of the mysteries of God. See that word, us? Primarily the target there is the apostles, Paul himself. But this can also apply to those building on this foundation that he's talked about. That he laid. In other words, how should you think of me and your church leaders? That's what Paul is saying. How should you think of me and your church leaders? First, servants here is a different word from the one he used in chapter 3, verse 5, but it still pictures an assistant or servant. It carries the idea of Humility and obedient service to someone. To who? To one regarded as his master. You notice he says servants of Christ. The Corinthians shouldn't miss the point. Church leaders should not strive for independent personal recognition wanting to be thought of as the all-wise, revered teacher or preacher. Instead, they should see themselves as servants of one master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Corinthian believers then should not glorify their leaders or in their leaders. And as Paul has already written in chapter 1, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So this is a theme that goes all the way through the letter and most of Paul's writings. 
The second thing Paul says is very telling. It reveals one specific responsibility given by God to apostles especially and to church leaders. And what is it? They are stewards of the mysteries of God. So let's start off by asking a question. Is that your view? Is that what you expect from your church leaders primarily? If it's not, it should be. This does not mean here where it says the stewards of mysteries of God that the gospel is mysterious in one sense that we use it, that it's unknowable except by a very few special elite people who have the key and the keys to everything knowledgeable and they make you feel low and despised because you just don't have it. That's not what this is talking about. But rather it is talking about that in some ways the gospel was hidden before the coming of Christ and now has been revealed in and through his coming and death and resurrection. That's the main point that he's making. Stewards in this culture that he's writing to, that he's living in, were often asked or tasked, excuse me, with distributing money and goods with an extended household within that household or some farming enterprise, especially some agricultural enterprise. That's what a steward did, tasked with distributing money and goods within an extended household or a farming enterprise. I've used Ben-Hur as an example before. I know that's telling because made in the late 50s, but you still should have seen the old one. And one of the main characters is Ben-Hur's steward. And like was depicted in the movie, many times these people were highly respected because they held so much responsibility, and yet they were slaves. In verse 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So a steward was naturally supposed to be competent, but faithfulness was absolutely necessary. So what is Paul saying? Paul's saying that above all else, he was called to be faithful in distributing to others what he had received from God. That was his calling. Now, many of you are probably asking something like, well, aren't all Christians in some sense servants of Christ who've been entrusted with the gospel and its proclamation and distribution? Well, yes, of course. But here, Paul is maintaining the distinction between leaders and others that he made in chapter 3. He's not making a point that he and Apollos are servants of Christ while other believers are not. That's not what he's saying. Nor is he implying that he and Apollos know the secret things of God 
while others don't know anything about them. That's not what he's saying. Leaders are not in a special priestly class. He's already made that point in chapter 3, verses 5 and following. Instead, the point that he's making is that what is required in some sense of all believers to know the gospel and proclaim it is especially required of the leaders of believers in the church. Is that clear? In other words, there is a difference of degree, which is why Paul can say what he does that bugs so many people in verse 16 that we just read. What does he say there? I urge you then be imitators of me. And I've heard people just go ballistic over this. How can he say to be imitators of him? This is the answer. There is a distinction. But it's not one that says somebody is more special in the eyes of God than another. It's a role distinction. And he does say that. Be imitators of me. Now, if you're still really bothered by this, and you might be, even the qualifications for elders or leadership in the church reveal this very same principle, and it's really obvious. You know why? Because there's only two of the listed qualifications for elders which are not required of every believer in the church. Which two are only required of Elders, leadership. Do you know them? One is, an elder or a leader should not be a new convert. Well, that's easy to understand. You don't want to bring somebody that became a Christian two weeks ago and say, hey, we want you to lead us. Okay, that's common sense. What's the other one? An elder should be able to teach. All the rest are character qualities, which in other places in the New Testament are mentioned for every believer to grow in. Now, step back from that. Do you see the point here? Christian leadership demands a focus of the kinds of characteristics and virtues that ought to be present in Christians everywhere. What it means to be a servant of Christ as a leader is to be obligated to promote the gospel by encouraging the people of God by your word, example, and discipline to live out what you say you believe. So see how beautifully this all fits together. So now that Paul has listed the two basic ways for apostles or church leaders that they should be thought of and regarded by other believers as servants of Christ, first, and second, as stewards of the mysteries of God, he proceeds to explain a little bit more to whom the leaders must ultimately prove themselves faithful in the rest of these first seven verses. This is also shocking for some of us independent Americans to read. 
verses 3 and 4. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Why? Because it is the Lord who judges me. Christian leaders in the church must prove themselves faithful ultimately, hear that? Ultimately, not to the church, but to the Lord. Because if you're ultimately faithful to the Lord, then you will be ultimately faithful to the church. Now, knowing this, keeps leaders from falling into all kinds of compromises, including popularity contrasts and everything else that you see and get disgusted with so often because we're all sinners. True? Paul knows that the only well done that will be that, that ultimately matters is the one on the last day from the Lord. That's why he says, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Because the Lord is the only one who fully knows our hearts. Completely. Thoroughly. In blinding light. And that's why he finishes with, it is the Lord who judges me. He also knows that his own estimate of his, ser- his service isn't ultimately significant either. In fact, I don't even judge myself, he writes. He's not saying that there's no place for self-examination because in so many other places he emphasizes the wisdom and the necessity of doing it. In this letter in chapter 9, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, where he says, examine yourselves. So that's not what he's saying. He's not saying you don't. And he writes, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. What, is he, what does that mean? He is saying that even though his conscience is clear as he writes this, he recognizes the fact that he doesn't know everything. And he must be he may be deceiving himself in some way. Does that shock you? It shouldn't, because that's what your attitude should be about yourself. And I hope that you hope your leaders feel that way. There's nothing worse than somebody who will not consider the fact that they are also a sinner and that they could really be off on this, which means what? You go back to the word of God and other men and women who are walking with God. And you hear and listen. And if every one of those people knows that they must ultimately look to the Lord as the one who judges That's called a humble group of people 
who are willing to stand on what God says in his word more than what they hear from somebody else. Again, the only opinion that significantly matters is the Lord's. He recognizes the fact that he doesn't know everything and that he might be deceiving himself in some way. So the bottom line for Christian leaders is this. They must constantly be aware that their ultimate loyalty and devotion is to one primary person. The Lord who bought them with the price of his own blood. He trumps all others, all concerns, all traditions. This must remain true even as leaders try to maintain peace among the Lord's people and as they try to win their confidence and respect. This is a hard job. Now, Paul's writing to a church that's already divided into all sorts of factions, and people aren't being nice about it. There is rampant sin in this church that is not only flaunted by the people who are committing it, the church is thinking they're being so loving that they're not even addressing it. Put yourself in that scenario. First, is Paul writing this? And then if you're really brave, as the congregation listening to it being read. This truth must never be taken as a justification to do as they please with no accountability. In fact, being ultimately accountable and answerable to the Lord himself as their calling from the Lord is faithfully carried out, that's an important word here, should encourage leaders instead of giving up and being so discouraged and to hearing something else that somebody said at lunch and having them look at you weird and all the things that you can get paranoid about, instead of that, it should encourage the leaders to gladly serve God's people because they're really serving the Lord. And there's places, there's one place in particular in the New Testament where an apostle writes to the people Live in such a way that you're a joy to your leaders. There may be some glory in being a squeaky wheel with bitterness in your heart, but it's not pretty and it will be addressed at some point. True? This is the only way that your Christian leaders who I hope and you continue to acknowledge and bring to these offices in this particular body, who do you want to really follow? Who do you want to be leading you in the humbleness of a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ who knows that the main task is to be a steward to to deliver the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ.
however it's needed to be delivered to you, to your loved ones, your family, your children growing up here, and just go on and on and on. And lastly, here in our passage this morning, Paul addresses those who follow Christian leaders in verses 5 through 7. He covers the bases here. In other words, Paul is now speaking in verses 5 through 7 to the people in the Corinthian church who are not the recognized leaders. So this is for all of us. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then, at that time, each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. You know, I read that two or three times before I realized the word was commendation instead of judgment. There's a contrast here, and it's incredible. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you should be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you, don't, you, that you haven't received? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Whoa, that's serious. Since followers in the church must recognize that leaders are called first and foremost to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and be stewards of his gospel, they, the followers, must not stand in judgment over their leaders. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't things that happen where you have to. This shouldn't be the attitude, though, that pervades the whole church. If your leader is one of the ones that's issued with some of the sin that's being dispersed, you will have to address it. And there are ways designed to do that. But that's not what he's concentrating on here. Okay, He's talking about him and Apollos and Peter, which I still haven't figured out because he probably wasn't even ever there. But somebody had to pick somebody to follow that wanted to be different from the other groups. It's kind of like somebody in Texas rooting for the Green Bay Packers. I don't know, something, something crazy where you've got distance but you can't really hear them or talk to them about that because they wouldn't want their name dragged through the mud with a group, this kind of group following them that are so off and so rabid that it's bringing Christ's own reputation into disrespect, and that means yours too. So we've got to get this. It's telling that the leaders they were first criticizing then and vilifying and dividing over were Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, and even the risen Christ. That should have gotten our attention the very first time we read it. It's like, what's wrong with these people? If Paul, Peter, Apollos, and Christ, risen from the dead, came walking in here, would you want to divide and pick sides? No. Because God calls them to lead. What a privilege and a joy to have more than one. 
Can you imagine what the new rising stars coming out of these divisive groups must have been like then? Don't dwell there too long because it's not pretty. Who are the people in these divisive groups that said, yeah, we want to be better than these guys. They're off on this. They're off on this. Follow them. Now it's starting to be them. And we're going to see that happen in the second letter that he writes. And he deals with it sometimes in the rest of this letter as well. But there's people rising up, rising stars, who want the glory for themselves that are causing a lot of this disruption. And most of us know what that's like because we've been someplace where we've seen it happen. And Paul knows, even though he wasn't even there anymore, that he personally was on the receiving end of these disparaging comments by the factional Corinthians who were stirring up so much trouble in all these divisive groups. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, he writes this, the next letter. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. And he didn't say too many things like that in these letters, but he made it pretty clear there. There are references throughout his Corinthian letters which indicate that Paul was among those leaders about whom many of the people have been gossiping and judging. And the language in our text indicates the Corinthians were making final judgments about Paul's faithfulness. Not just, well, he slipped once. That's We all do. That would be observation. But they are making final judgments about him. And that means that what they were saying was inappropriate and hasty and it was definitely not a thorough and caring process with investigation and then confrontation if there was something off. Here in verse 5, Paul lets them know in no uncertain terms that judging his or the other leader's faithfulness can only be done truthfully by the Lord when he comes back. He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, meaning the acts and motives concealed in the inner recesses of a person's mind and heart. I don't know about you. I should know about you because you're like me. That should terrify us. That's when the blood of Christ covering our sin becomes the most beautiful thing in the whole world. Right there. Now, he is not saying that all judgment or judging is inappropriate for the church, which I mentioned a while ago. Because in the very next chapter, he instructs the church to judge the sexual immorality of someone who is actively committing the sin and flaunting it while the church does absolutely nothing about it. This is an interesting letter. We have chapter 5 where he basically says, get rid of them. 
The sinful leaven is destroying the, the whole body. And you are being so hypocritical in saying something that's wrong is right. But how often do we read and think that chapter is special? In the same letter is chapter 13. Love is patient and kind. We see a balance of the way the body should behave here. Not one extreme over the other. And we need to keep that in view as we study all of this. Paul then here in this verse 5 of uh, chapter 4. I think I just got lost. No, it's, it is verse 5. Um, he lays before them that contrasting truth that the Lord has commendation for each believer. Did you expect that here? I certainly didn't. Commendation. A lot of translations actually use the word praise here. And he leaves it at that. In verse 6, Paul wants what he's been teaching here understood as applying to their attitudes towards all of God's people. And you can see that. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another. They should not glory in, therefore, or take pride in some believers and deride or despise others. That is a beautiful principle for the body of Christ. In other words, if they learn not to go beyond the teaching of Scripture. Not to go beyond the teaching of Scripture about how they should treat God's leaders and all of God's people, then what will the result be? The result will be that they will not be conceited or puffed up in favor of one against another. Now, the opposite of that is if you see puffed up people in arrogance in conversation or discussions or counseling sessions, that means there is a huge open door letting you see their heart and how rotten it is in that area. In verse 7, this conceited, puffed-up issue is revealed for what it is. I tried to read it that way so that you kind of get it. But you probably were reading it that way already. Because these are three rhetorical questions. That means it's a question that is obviously answered with the, the answer that you know. Okay, you, you know the answer to it. But he doesn't just ask one. He asks three. Because these people were hard-hearted. They were drowning in their sinful attitudes, bitter, looking for their own glory. So he asked it three times. For who sees anything different in you? What is that? What is he saying there? One, I think it's the, the uh, 
Christian Standard Bible that has, who makes you so superior? And that's what it means. What do you have that you did not receive? What's the answer? Nothing. It, it's, isn't it unbelievable that if you've been gifted with, say, let's, some kind of incredible talent that you recognized early and you've developed, and then you take credit for it the whole rest of your life. And I'm like, did you choose your parents? I mean, did you, did you fill out a form before you were born that said, I'd like to be this way? I'd like to have these abilities and these. No, you didn't. You didn't bring anything to the table. You just showed up on the scene. Made in God's image. And he designed you a certain way for his glory. And then he nails it. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That you didn't receive it. You made yourself this way. I think it's interesting that in this section, it's almost like Paul does the first six verses just so he could ask these last three questions. And we need to ask them to ourselves when we find ourselves puffed up and arrogant. The obvious answer to all of them, they received all from God and they have no right to boast about anything. So this is the first of three ways that Paul describes church leadership in this chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. And simply, church leadership means being servants of Christ as they are stewards of the mysteries of God, his gospel. And I hope that helps. We are not here to be the whatever of whatever. We are here to serve God. And we are here to all be stewards of what he's given us, which is his gospel and the new life in Christ. And that helps explain why everything we say, do, pray, and sing should bring glory and honor to the one who has given us life. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are rightfully and needfully humbled as we read this passage. We recognize that you have brought us together as the body of Christ, united us in Christ. Our sins are covered by his blood. We have been adopted as your own children And our purpose in life is to enjoy you and glorify in you. To enjoy what you have created. To get to know you and enjoy this relationship. And at the same time, worship and reverence you in all areas of our life. And we pray that you would be continually working in our hearts to bring us to love you in that way, to thank you in that way, to serve you in that way, 
and to be thankful for how you have used and gifted everyone else that you've brought to yourself and that we would be amazed by your grace in saving any of us. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.